Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Taiwan, the Emperor's brother, was a sot of sots, and as the night wore on, he challenged me to a drinking. The Emperor was delighted and commanded a dozen of the noblest sots to join in the bout. The women were dismissed, and we went to drink, drink for drink, measure for measure. Kim, I kept by me and midway along, despite Hendrik Hommel's warning scowls, dismissed him and the company, first requesting and obtaining palace lodgment instead of the inn. Next day the palace was abuzz with my feast, for I had put Taiwan and all his champions snoring on the mats and walked unaided to my bed. Never in the days of vicissitude that came later did Taiwan doubt my claim of Korean birth. Only a Korean, he averred, could possess so strong a head. The palace was a city in itself, and we were lodged in a sort of summer-house that stood apart. The princely quarters were mine, of course, and Hommel and Martins, with the rest of the grumbling coonies, had to content themselves with what remained. I was summoned before Yunsan, the Buddhist priest I have mentioned. It was his first glimpse of me and my first of him. Even Kim he dismissed from me, and we sat alone on deep mats in a twilight room. Lord, Lord, what a man and a mind was Yunsan! He made to probe my soul. He knew things of other lands and places that no one in Chaosen dreamed to know. Did he believe my fabled birth? I could guess not, for his face was less changeful than a bowl of bronze. What Yunsan's thoughts were only Yunsan knew. But in him, this poor-clad, lean-bellied priest, I sensed the power behind power in all the palace and in all Chaosin. I sensed also, through the drift of speech, that he had use of me. Now was this use suggested by the Lady Um? A nut I gave Hendrik Hommel to crack. I little knew, and less I cared, for I lived always in the moment and let others forecast, forfend, and travail their anxiety. I answered, too, the summons of the Lady Um, following a sleek-faced, cat-footed eunuch, through quiet palace byways to her apartments. She lodged as a princess of the blood should lodge. She, too, had a palace to herself, among lotus ponds where grow forests of trees centuries old, but so dwarfed that they reached no higher than my middle. Bronze bridges, so delicate and rare that they looked as if fashioned by jewel-smiths, spanned her lily-ponds, and a bamboo grove screened her palace apart from all the palace. My head was a whirl. Sea Cooney that I was, I was no dolt with women, and I sensed more than idle curiosity in her sending for me. I had heard love-tales of common men and queens, and was a-wondering if now it was my fortune to prove such tales true. The Lady Om wasted little time. There were women about her, but she regarded their presence no more than a carter his horses. I sat beside her on deep mats that made the room half a couch, and wine was given me, and sweets to nibble served on tiny, foot-high tables inlaid with pearl. Lord, Lord, I had but to look into her eyes. But wait, make no mistake, the Lady Om was no fool. I have said she was my own age, all of thirty she was, with the poise of her years. She knew what she wanted, she knew what she did not want. It was because of this she had never married, although all pressure that an Asiatic court could put upon a woman had been vainly put upon her to compel her to marry Chang Mung Ju. He was a lesser cousin of the great Min family. 
himself no fool, and grasping so greedily for power as to perturb Yun-san, who strove to retain all power himself, and keep the palace and Chao-sin in ordered balance. Thus Yun-san it was, who in secret allied himself with the Lady Om, saved her from her cousin, used her to trim her cousin's wings. But enough of intrigue. It was long before I guessed a tithe of it, and then largely through the Lady Ohm's confidences and Hendrik Hamel's conclusions. The Lady Ohm was a very flower of woman. Women such as she are born rarely, scarce twice a century the whole world over. She was unhampered by rule or convention. Religion with her was a series of abstractions, partly learned from Yunsan, partly worked out for herself. Vulgar religion, the public religion she held, was a device to keep the toiling millions to their toil. She had a will of her own, and she had a heart all womanly. She was a beauty, yes, a beauty by any set rule of the world. Her large black eyes were neither slitted nor slanted in the Asiatic way. They were long, true, but set squarely, and with just the slightest hint of obliqueness that was all for piquancy. I have said she was no fool. Behold! As I palpitated to the situation, princess and sea cooney and love not a little that threatened big, I racked my cooney's brains for wit to carry the thing off with manhood credit. It chanced early in this first meeting that I mentioned what I had told all the court, that I was in truth a Korean of the blood of the ancient house of Koryu. Let be, she said, tapping my lips with her peacock fan, no child's tale here. Know that with me you are better and greater than any house of Koryu. You are. She paused, and I waited, watching the daring grow in her eyes. You are a man, she completed. Not even in my sleep have I ever dreamed there was such a man as you on his two legs upstanding in the world. Lord, Lord, and what could a poor sea cooney do? This particular sea cooney, I admit, blushed through his sea tan till the Lady Ohm's eyes were twin pools of roguishness in their teasing deliciousness, and my arms were all but about her. And she laughed tantalizingly and alluringly, and clapped her hands for her women, and I knew that the audience, for this once, was over. I knew also there would be other audiences. There must be other audiences. Back to Hommel, my head a-whirl. The woman, said he, after deep cogitation, he looked at me and sighed an envy that I could not mistake. It is your brawn, Adam Strang, that bull throat of yours, your yellow hair. Well, it's the game, man. Play her and all will be well with us. Play her and I shall teach you how. I bristled. Sea cooney I was, but I was man, and to no man would I be holden in my way with the women. Hendrik Hommel might be one time part owner of the old sparware, with a navigator's knowledge of the stars, and deep versed in books, but with women, no, there I would not give him better. He smiled that thin-lipped smile of his, and queried, How like you the Lady Om? In such matters a cooney is not particular, I temporized. How like you her? he repeated, his beady eyes boring into me. Passing well, I and more than passing well, if you will have it. Then wind to her, he commanded, and some day we will get ship and escape from this cursed land. I'll give half the silks of the Indies for a meal of Christian food again. He regarded me intently. Do you think you can win to her? he questioned. I was half in the air at the challenge. He smiled his satisfaction. But not too quickly, he advised. Quick things are cheap things. 
Put a prize upon yourself. Be chary of your kindnesses. Make a value of your bull-throat and yellow hair, and thank God you have them, for they are of more worth in a woman's eyes than are the brains of a dozen philosophers. Strange worrying days were those that followed. What of my audiences with the emperor, my drinking bouts with Taiwan, my conferences with Yunsan, and my hours with the Lady Om? Besides, I sat up half the nights, by Halma's command, learning from Kim all the minutiae of court etiquette and manners, the history of Korea and of gods old and new, and the forms of polite speech, noble speech, and coolie speech. Never was Si Kuni worked so hard. I was a puppet, puppet to Yonsan, who had need of me, puppet to Hamel, who schemed the wit of the affair that was so deep that alone I should have drowned. Only with the Lady Om was I man, not puppet. And yet, and yet, as I look back and ponder across time, I have my doubts. I think the Lady Om, too, had her will with me, wanting me for her heart's desire. Yet in this she was well met, for it was not long ere she was my heart's desire, and such was the immediacy of my will, that not her will, nor Hendrik Hommel's, nor Yonsan's, could hold back my arms from about her. In the meantime, however, I was caught up in a palace intrigue I could not fathom. I could catch the drift of it, no more, against Chang Mangju, the princely cousin of the Lady Om. Beyond my guessing there were cliques and cliques within cliques that made a labyrinth of the palace and extended to all the seven coasts. But I did not worry. I left that to Hendrik Hommel. To him I reported every detail that occurred when he was not with me, and he, with furrowed brows, sitting darkly by the hour, like a patient spider, unraveled the tangle and spun the web afresh. As my body-slave, he insisted upon attending me everywhere, being only barred on occasion by Yunsan. Of course I barred him from my moments with the Lady Om, but told him in general what passed, with exception of tenderer incidences that were not his business. I think Hommel was content to sit back and play the secret part. He was too cold-blooded not to calculate that the risk was mine. If I prospered, he prospered. If I crashed to ruin, he might creep out like a ferret. I am convinced that he so reasoned, and yet it did not save him in the end, as you shall see. Stand by me, I told Kim, and whatsoever you wish shall be yours. Have you a wish? I would command the tiger-hunters of Pyongyang, and so command the palace guards, he answered. Wait, said I, and that will you do. I have said it. The how of the matter was beyond me, but he who has not can dispense the world in largesse, and I, who had not, gave Kim captaincy of the palace guards. The best of it is that I did fulfill my promise. Kim did come to command the tiger-hunters, although it brought him to a sad end. Scheming and intriguing I left to Hamel and Yunsan, who were the politicians. I was mere man and lover, and merrier than theirs was the time I had. Picture it to yourself, a hard-bitten, joy-loving sea-cooney, irresponsible, unaware ever of past or future, winning and dining with kings, the accepted lover of a princess, and with brains like Hamel's and Yunsan's to do all planning and executing for me. More than once Yunsan almost divined the mind behind my mind, but when he probed Hamel, Hamel proved a stupid slave, a thousand times less interested in affairs of state and policy than he was interested in my health and comfort, and garrulously anxious about my drinking contest with Taiwan. I think the Lady Om guessed the truth and kept it to herself. 
Wit was not her desire, but, as Hommel had said, a bull-throat and a man's yellow hair. Much that pawed between us I shall not relate, though the Lady Alm is dear dust these centuries. But she was not to be denied, nor was I, and when a man and woman will their hearts together, heads may fall and kingdoms crash, and yet they will not forego. Came the time when our marriage was mooted, oh, quietly at first, most quietly, as mere palace gossip in dark corners between eunuchs and waiting women. But in a palace the gossip of the kitchen scullions will creep to the throne. Soon there was a pretty to-do. The palace was the pulse of Chao Sin, and when the palace rocked, Chao Sin trembled. And there was reason for the rocking. Our marriage would be a blow straight between the eyes of Chung Mung Ju. He fought with a show of strength for which Yun San was ready. Chung Mung Ju disaffected half the provincial priesthood until they pilgrimaged in processions a mile long to the palace gates and frightened the emperor into a panic. But Yun San held like a rock. The other half of the provincial priesthood was his, with, in addition, all the priesthood of the great cities such as Kaijo, Fusan, Sungdao, Pyongyang, Chinampu, and Chimulpo. Yun San and the Lady Om between them twisted the emperor right about. As she confessed to me afterward, she bullied him with tears and hysteria and threats of a scandal that would shake the throne. And to cap it all, at the psychological moment, Yun San pandered the emperor to novelties of excess that had been long preparing. You must grow your hair for the marriage knot, Yun San warned me one day, with the ghost of a twinkle in his austere eyes, more nearly facetious and human than I had ever beheld him. Now it is not meet that a princess espouse a sea-cooney, or even a claimant of the ancient blood of Koryu, who is without power or place or visible symbols of rank. So it was promulgated by imperial decree that I was a prince of Koryu. Next, after breaking the bones and decapitating the then governor of the five provinces, himself an adherent of Chung Mung Ju, I was made governor of the seven home provinces of ancient Koryu. In Cho Sin, seven is the magic number. To complete this number, two of the provinces were taken over from the hands of two more of Chung Mung Ju's adherents. Lord, Lord, a sea cooney, and dispatched north over the Mandarin road with five hundred soldiers and a retinue at my back. I was a governor of seven provinces, where fifty thousand troops awaited me. Life, death, and torture— I carried at my disposal. I had a treasury and a treasurer, to say nothing of a regiment of scribes. Awaiting me also was a full thousand of tax-farmers, who squeezed the last coppers from the toiling people. The seven provinces constituted the northern march. Beyond lay what is now Manchuria, but which was known by us as the country of the Hungdu, or Redheads. They were wild raiders, on occasion crossing the Yalu in great masses and overrunning northern Chosin like locusts. It was said they were given to cannibal practices. I know of experience that they were terrible fighters, most difficult to convince of a beating. A whirlwind year it was. While Yun San and the Lady Om at Keiju completed the disgrace of Chung Mung Ju, I proceeded to make a reputation for myself. Of course, it was really Hendrik Hommel at my back but I was the fine figurehead that carried it off. Through me, Hommel taught our soldiers drill and tactics and taught the redhead strategy. The fighting was grand, and though it took a year, the year's end saw peace on the northern border, and no redheads but dead redheads on our side the Yalu. 
I do not know if this invasion of the redheads is recorded in Western history, but if so, it will give a clue to the date of the times of which I write. Another clue. When was Hideyoshi the shogun of Japan? In my time I heard the echoes of the two invasions, a generation before, driven by Hideyoshi through the heart of Chosen, from Fusan in the south to as far north as Pyongyang. It was this Hideyoshi who sent back to Japan a myriad tubs of pickled ears and noses of Koreans slain in battle. I talked with many old men and women who had seen the fighting and escaped the pickling. Back to Kaijo and the Lady Om. Lord, Lord, she was a woman. For forty years she was my woman. I know. No dissenting voice was raised against the marriage. Chung Mengju, clipped of power, in disgrace, had retired to sulk somewhere on the far northeast coast. Yonsan was absolute. Nightly the single beacons flared their message of peace across the land. The emperor grew more weak-legged and blear-eyed what of the ingenious deviltries devised for him by Yonsan. The Lady Om and I had won to our heart's desires. Kim was in command of the palace guards. Guanyang Jin, the provincial governor who had planked and beaten us when we were first cast away, I had shorn of power and banished forever from appearing within the walls of Kaijo. Oh, and Johannes Martins. Discipline is well hammered into a sea cooney, and despite my new greatness, I could never forget that he had been my captain in the days we sought new indies in the sparware. According to my tale first told in court, he was the only free man in my following. The rest of the coonies, being considered my slaves, could not aspire to office of any sort under the crown. But Johannes could, and did, the sly old fox. I little guessed his intent when he asked me to make him governor of the paltry little province of Kungju. Kungju had no wealth of farms or fisheries. The taxes scarce paid the collecting, and the governorship was little more than an empty honor. The place was in truth a graveyard, a sacred graveyard, for on Tabong Mountain were shrined and sepultured the bones of the ancient kings of Silla. Better governor of Kungju than retainer of Adam Strang was what I thought was in his mind, nor did I dream that it was except for fear of loneliness that caused him to take four of the coonies with him. Gorgeous were the two years that followed. My seven provinces I governed mainly through needy yang bands selected for me by Yansan. An occasional inspection, done in state and accompanied by the Lady Om, was all that was required of me. She possessed a summer palace on the south coast, which we frequented much. Then there were man's diversions. I became patron of the sport of wrestling, and revived archery among the Yang bands. Also there was tiger-hunting in the northern mountains. A remarkable thing was the tides of Chosin. On our northeast coast there was scarce a rise and fall of a foot. On our west coast the neap tides ran as high as sixty feet. Chosin had no commerce, no foreign traders. There was no voyaging beyond her coasts, and no voyaging of other peoples to her coasts. This was due to her immemorial policy of isolation. Once in a decade or a score of years, Chinese ambassadors arrived, but they came overland, around the Yellow Sea, across the country of the Hongdu, and down the Mandarin Road to Kaijo. The round trip was a year-long journey. Their mission was to exact from our emperor the empty ceremonial acknowledgment of China's ancient suzerainty. But Hamel, from long brooding, was ripening for action. His plans grew apace. Cho Sin was Indies enough for him, could he but work it right. 
Little he confided, but when he began to play to have me made admiral of the Chosen Navy of Junks, and to inquire more than casually of the details of the store-places of the Imperial Treasury, I could put two and two together. Now I did not care to depart from Cho Sin except with the Lady Om. When I broached the possibility of it, she told me, warm in my arms, that I was her king, and that wherever I led she would follow. As you shall see, it was truth, full truth, that she uttered. It was Yonsan's fault for letting Chong Mung Ju live. And yet it was not Yonsan's fault. He had not dared otherwise. Disgraced at court, nevertheless, Chong Mung Ju had been too popular with the provincial priesthood. Yonsan had been compelled to hold his hand, and Chong Mung Ju, apparently sulking on the northeast coast, had been anything but idle. His emissaries, chiefly Buddhist priests, were everywhere, went everywhere, gathering in even the least of the provincial magistrates to allegiance to him. It takes the cold patience of the Asiatic to conceive and execute huge and complicated conspiracies. The strength of Chung Mung Ju's palace clique grew beyond Yunsan's wildest dreaming. Chung Mung Ju corrupted the very palace guards, the tiger hunters of Pengyang whom Kim commanded. And while Yunsan nodded, while I devoted myself to sport and to the Lady Om, while Heinrich Hommel perfected plans for the looting of the imperial treasury, and while Johannes Martin schemed his own scheme among the tombs of the Tabong Mountain, the volcano of Chung Mung Ju's devising gave no warning beneath us. Lord, Lord, when the storm broke, it was stand out from under, all hands, and save your necks. And there were necks that were not saved. The springing of the conspiracy was premature. Johannes Martins really precipitated the catastrophe, and what he did was too favorable for Chung Mung Ju not to advantage by. For see, the people of Chao Sin are fanatical ancestor worshippers, and that old pirate of a booty-lusting Dutchman, with his four coonies in far Kyung Ju, did no less a thing than raid the tombs of the gold-coffined, long-buried kings of ancient Silla. The work was done in the night, and for the rest of the night they traveled for the sea-coast, but the following day a dense fog lay over the land, and they lost their way to the waiting junk which Johann Martins had privily outfitted. He and the Kunis were rounded in by Yi Sun Sin, the local magistrate, one of Chung Mung Ju's adherents. Only Herman Tromp escaped in the fog, and was able long after to tell me of the adventure. That night, although news of the sacrilege was spreading through Chao Sin, and half the northern provinces had risen on their officials, Kaijo and the court slept in ignorance. By Chung Mung Ju's orders, the beacons flared their nightly message of peace, and night by night the peace beacons flared, while day and night Chung Mung Ju's messengers killed horses on all the roads of Cho Sin. It was my luck to see their messenger arrive at Kaijo. At twilight, as I rode out through the great gate of the capital, I saw the jaded horse fall and the exhausted rider stagger in on foot and I little dreamed that that man carried my destiny with him into Kaijo. His message sprang the palace revolution. I was not due to return until midnight, and by midnight all was over. At nine in the evening the conspirators secured possession of the emperor in his own apartments. They compelled him to order the immediate attendance of the heads of all departments, and as they presented themselves one by one, before his eyes, they were cut down. Meantime, the tiger-hunters were up and out of hand. Yunsan and Hendrik Hamel were badly beaten with the flats of swords and made prisoners. The seven other coonies escaped from the palace along with the Lady Om. They were enabled to do this by Kim, 
who held the way, sword in hand, against his own tiger-hunters. They cut him down and trod over him. Unfortunately, he did not die of his wounds. Like a flaw of wind on a summer night, the revolution, a palace revolution, of course, blew and was passed. Chung Mung Ju was in the saddle. The emperor ratified whatever Chung Mung Ju willed. Beyond grasping at the sacrilege of the king's tombs and applauding Chung Mung Ju, Cho Sin was unperturbed. Heads of officials fell everywhere, being replaced by Chung Mung Ju's appointees, but there were no risings against the dynasty. And now to tell what befell us. Johannes Martins and his three coonies, after being exhibited to be spat upon by the rabble of half the villages and wall cities of Chao Sin, were buried to their necks in the ground of the open space before the palace gate. Water was given them that they might live longer to yearn for the food, steaming hot and savory and changed hourly, that was placed temptingly before them. They say old Johannes Martins lived longest, not giving up the ghost for a full fifteen days. Kim was slowly crushed to death bone by bone and joint by joint, by the torturers, and was a long time in dying. Hamel, whom Chung Mung Ju divined as my brains, was executed by the paddle, in short, was promptly and expeditiously beaten to death by the delighted shouts of the Kaijo populace. Yun San was given a brave death. He was playing a game of chess with the jailer, when the emperor's, or rather, Chung Mung Ju's, messenger arrived with the poison cup. Wait a moment, said Yun San. You should be better mannered than to disturb a man in the midst of a game of chess. I shall drink directly the game is over. And while the messenger waited, Yon San finished the game, winning it, then drained the cup. It takes an Asiatic to temper his spleen to steady, persistent, life-long revenge. This Chung Mung Ju did with the Lady Om and me. He did not destroy us. We were not even imprisoned. The Lady Om was degraded of all rank and divested of all possessions. An imperial decree was promulgated and posted in the last least village of Cho Sin, to the effect that I was of the house of Koryu and that no man might kill me. It was further declared that the eight sea coonies who survived must not be killed, neither were they to be favored. They were to be outcasts, beggars on the highways. And that is what the Lady Om and I became, beggars on the highways. Forty long years of persecution followed, for Chung Mung Ju's hatred of the Lady Om and me was deathless. Worse luck, he was favored with long life as well as we were cursed with it. I have said the Lady Om was a wonder of a woman. Beyond endlessly repeating that statement, words fail me with which to give her just appreciation. Somewhere I have heard that a great lady once said to her lover, A tent and a crust of bread with you. In effect, that is what the Lady Om said to me. More than to say it, she lived the last letter of it, when more often than not, crusts were not plentiful, and the sky itself was our tent. Every effort I made to escape beggary was in the end frustrated by Chung Mung Ju. In Song Do I became a fuel carrier, and the Lady Om and I shared a hut that was vastly more comfortable than the open road in bitter winter weather. But Chung Mung Ju found me out, and I was beaten and planked and put out upon the road. That was a terrible winter. The winter poor, what now Vandervoot, froze to death on the streets of Kaijo. In Pyongyang I became a water-carrier. For know that that old city, whose walls were ancient even in the times of David, was considered by the people to be a canoe, and that therefore to sink a well inside the walls would be to scupper the city. So all day long thousands of coolies, water-jars yoked to their shoulders, tramped out the river gate and back. 
I became one of these until Chung Mung Ju sought me out, and I was beaten and planked and set upon the highway. Ever it was the same. In Far Weeju I became a dog butcher, killing the brutes publicly before my open stall, cutting and hanging the carcasses for sale, tanning the hides under the filth of the feet of the passers-by by spreading the hides, raw side up, in the muck of the street. But Chung Mung Ju found me out. I was a dyer's helper in Pyonhan, a gold miner in the placers of Kang Wan, a rope-maker and wine-twister in Chiksan. I plaited straw hats in Padok, gathered grass in Wang Hai, and in Mass and Po sold myself to a rice-farmer to toil bent double in the flooded paddies for less than a coolie's pay. But there was never a time or place that the long arm of Chung Mung Ju did not reach out and punish and thrust me upon the beggar's way. The Lady Alm and I searched two seasons and found a single root of the wild mountain ginseng which is esteemed so rare and precious a thing by the doctors that the Lady Ohm and I could have lived a year in comfort from the sale of our one root. But in the selling of it I was apprehended, the root confiscated, and I was better beaten and longer planked than ordinarily. Everywhere the wandering members of the great peddler's guild carried word of me, of my comings and goings and doings, to Chung Mung Ju at Kaizhou. Only twice, in all the days after my downfall, did I meet Chung Mung Ju face to face. The first time was a wild winter night of storm in the high mountains of Kang Wung. A few hoarded coppers had bought for the Lady Ohm and me sleeping space in the dirtiest and coldest corner of the one large room of the inn. We were just about to begin our meagre supper of horse beans and wild garlic, cooked into a stew with a scrap of bullock that must have died of old age, when there was a tinkling of bronze pony bells and the stamp of hooves without. The door opened and entered Chung Mung Ju, the personification of well-being, prosperity and power, shaking the snow from his priceless Mongolian furs. Place was made for him and his dozen retainers, and there was room for all without crowding when his eyes chanced to light on the Lady Ohm and me. The vermin there in the corner, clear it out, he commanded. And his horse boys lashed us with their whips and drove us out into the storm. But there was to be another meeting, after long years, as you shall see. There was no escape. Never was I permitted to cross the northern frontier. Never was I permitted to put foot to a sampan on the sea. The Peddler's Guild carried these commands of Chung Mung Ju to every village and every soul of all Cho Sin. I was a marked man. Lord, Lord Cho Sin, I know your every highway and mountain path, all your walled cities and the least of your villages. For two score years I wandered and starved over you, and the Lady Om ever wandered and starved with me. What we in extremity have eaten, leavings of dog's flesh, putrid and unsaleable, flung to us by the mocking butchers. Minari, a watercress gathered from stagnant pools of slime, spoiled kimchi that would revolt the stomachs of peasants and that could be smelled a mile. I, I have stolen bones from curs, gleaned the public road for stray grains of rice, robbed ponies of their steaming bean soup on frosty nights. It is not strange that I did not die. I knew and was upheld by two things. The first, the Lady Ohm by my side. The second, the certain faith, that the time would come when my thumbs and fingers would fast lock in the gullet of Chung Mung Ju. Turned always away at the city gates of Kaizhou, where I sought Chung Mung Ju, we wandered on, through seasons and decades of seasons, across Cho Sin, whose every inch of road was an old story to our sandals. Our history and identity were wide scattered as the land was wide. No person breathed who did not know us and our punishment. 
There were coolies and peddlers who shouted insults at the Lady Ohm, and who felt the wrath of my clutch in their topknots, the wrath of my knuckles in their faces. There were old women in far mountain villages who looked on the beggar woman by my side, the lost Lady Ohm, and sighed and shook their heads while their eyes dimmed with tears. And there were young women whose faces warmed with compassion as they gazed on the bulk of my shoulders, the blue of my eyes, and my long yellow hair, I, who had once been a prince of Koryu and the ruler of provinces. And there were rabbles of children that tagged at our heels, jeering and screeching, pelting us with filth of speech and of the common road. Beyond Yelu, forty miles wide, was the strip of waste that constituted the northern frontier and that ran from sea to sea. It was not really wasteland, but land that had been deliberately made waste in carrying out Cho Sen's policy of isolation. On this forty-mile strip all farms, villages, and cities had been destroyed. It was no man's land, infested with wild animals and traversed by companies of mounted tiger-hunters whose business was to kill any human being they found. That way there was no escape for us, nor was there any escape for us by sea. As the years passed, my seven fellow coonies came more to frequent Fusan. It was on the southeast coast where the climate was milder, but more than climate, it lay nearest of all Chosin to Japan. Across the narrow straits, just farther than the eye can see, was the one hope of escape, Japan, where doubtless occasional ships of Europe came. Strong upon me is the vision of those seven aging men on the cliffs of Fusan, yearning with all their souls across the sea they would never sail again. At times junks of Japan were sighted, but never lifted a familiar topsail of old Europe above the sea-rim. Years came and went, and the seven coonies and myself and the Lady Ohm, passing through middle life into old age, more and more directed our footsteps to Fasan. And as the years came and went, now one, now another, failed to gather at the usual place. Hans Omden was the first to die. Jacob Brinker, who was his roadmate, brought the news. Jacob Brinker was the last of the seven, and he was nearly ninety when he died, outliving Tromp a scant two years. I well remember the pair of them, toward the last, worn and feeble, in beggar's rags, with beggar's bowls, sunning themselves side by side on the cliffs, telling old stories in cackling shrill voice like children. And Tromp would munder over and over of how Johannes Martins and the Coonies robbed the kings on Tabong Mountain, each embalmed in his gold coffin with an embalmed maid on either side, and of how these ancient proud ones crumbled to dust within the hour while the Coonies cursed and sweated at junking the coffins. As sure as loot is loot, old Johannes Martins would have got away and across the Yellow Sea with his booty had it not been for the fog next day that lost him. That cursed fog! A song was made of it, that I heard and hated through all Chosin to my dying day. Here run two lines of it. Yangu Kini Chejin Anga Weyan Pong Tora Deunda The thick fog of the Westerners broods over Wayne Peak. For forty years I was a beggar of Chosin. Of the fourteen of us that were cast away, only I survived. The Lady Ohm was of the same indomitable stuff, and we aged together. She was a little, wizened, toothless old woman toward the last, but ever she was the Wonder Woman, and she carried my heart in hers to the end. For an old man, threescore and ten, I still retained great strength. My face was withered, my yellow hair turned white, my broad shoulders shrunken, and yet much of the strength of my sea-coony days resided in the muscles left me. Thus it was that I was able to do what I shall now relate. It was a spring morning on the cliffs of Fusan, hard by the highway, that the Lady Ohm and I sat warming in the sun. We were in the rags of beggary, 
prideless in the dust, and yet I was laughing heartily at some mumbled merry quip of the Lady Om when a shadow fell upon us. It was the great litter of Chung Mengju, borne by eight coolies, with outriders before and behind, and fluttering attendants on either side. Two emperors, civil war, famine, and a dozen palace revolutions had come and gone, and Chung Mengju remained, even then the great power at Kaizhou. He must have been nearly eighty that spring morning on the cliffs, when he signalled with palsied hand for his litter to be rested down, that he might gaze upon us whom he had punished for so long. Now, O oh my king, the Lady Om mumbled low to me, then turned to wine and alms of Chung Mengju, whom she affected not to recognize. And I knew what was her thought. Had we not shared it for forty years? And the moment of its consummation had come at last. So I, too, affected not to recognize my enemy, and putting on an idiotic senility, I, too, crawled in the dust toward the litter, whining for mercy and charity. The attendants would have driven me back, but with age-quavering cackles, Chung Mengju restrained them. He lifted himself on a shaking elbow, and with the other shaking hand, drew wider apart the silken curtains. His withered old face was transfigured with delight as he gloated on us. Oh, my king! The Lady Om whined to me in her beggar's chant, and I knew all her long-tried love and faith in my emprise were in that chant. And the red wrath was up in me, ripping and tearing at my will to be free. Small wonder that I shook with the effort to control. The shaking, happily, they took for the weakness of age. I held up my brass begging bowl and whined more dolefully, and bleared my eyes to hide the blue fire I knew was in them, and calculated the distance and my strength for the leap. Then I was swept away in a blaze of red. There was a crushing of curtains and curtain poles and a squawking and squalling of attendants as my hands closed on Chung Mung Ju's throat. The litter overturned, and I scarce knew whether I was heads or heels, but my clutch never relaxed. In the confusion of cushions and quilts and curtains, at first few of the attendants' blows found me, but soon the horsemen were in, and their heavy whip-butts began to fall on my head, while a multitude of hands clawed and tore at me. I was dizzy, but not unconscious, and very blissful, with my old fingers buried in that lean and scraggly old neck I had sought for so long. The blows continued to rain on my head, and I had whirling thoughts in which I likened myself to a bulldog with jaws fast locked. Chung Mung Ju could not escape me, and I know he was well dead, ere darkness, like that of an anesthetic, descended upon me there on the cliffs of Fusan by the Yellow Sea. End of chapter 15